Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas and your host for today's interview. I'm speaking today with Thomas Richards, a history teacher at Springside Chestnut Hill Academy in Philadelphia. Dr. Richards is the author of Breakaway Americas, the Unmanifest Future of the Jacksonian United States, which came out this past spring with Johns Hopkins University Press. Welcome to the New Books Network, Tommy. Thanks for having me, Steve. Why don't we begin by just hearing a bit about you? Tell us about yourself, about how you got interested in history, and about how you became a historian. Sure. I um, for uh, we're eventually probably talk a lot about contingency and chance, but one of the ironic things about uh, my life is that there is almost nothing contingent or related to chance to kind of my. Uh, in my um, love of history, I've always loved history. I, my dad took me there to, Gettys, to Gettysburg when I was three years old, uh, and I remember wearing a belt with a sword and uh, a fake gun around sweatpants. And I think it's ever—it's been baked in ever since. Uh, I, I majored in history as, a, as an undergraduate at the University of Pennsylvania. I taught high school for five years in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, then I got my PhD in history at Temple, and am uh, teaching at a private school now in Philadelphia. Um, and I've always loved history and always wanted to write history and read history. So it's kind of, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's been baked in since I was a child, I guess. And what got you interested in the topic of this book, in the topic of the Jacksonian West in particular? Uh, I'm a political historian uh, predominantly, um, and I'm really interested in issues of sovereignty uh, and power uh, and uh, political and national identity. And uh, and I always wanted to study the early republic, and really those issues come to a head the most uh, during the Jacksonian era in the West, uh, more so than the East. So in some ways, it was um, my my interests, kind of my thematic interests, led me to the West um, rather than looking at the West first. Um, I was um, I was also uh, troubled, as I I mean I guess what I how I ended up getting to this topic is that I was troubled by the constant 
repetition of uh, manifest destiny. It's an explanatory reason for U.S. expansion in the mid-1840s. Uh, as someone who, who was a political historian, the politics of the 1830s and early 1840s just didn't match what historians and really textbooks and syntheses say about how all Americans really wanted to, um, or a majority of Americans wanted to expand across the continent. And it was kind of, um, it was always present and it's almost, we come at that as a prior, that's assumed. Uh, and uh, I don't know why uh, it would be assumed when we look at an election like 1840, where expansion is not uh, a topic uh, Americans aren't interested in it. They're interested in the economy. Um, and so I was frustrated with what I thought was this dominant paradigm and wanted to kind of really see what were Americans doing in the West during this time period and actually read their letters uh, instead of kind of putting manifest destiny onto them and assuming they believe that uh, from the get-go. So you kind of saw a gap between what historians were saying and what you yourself were seeing in the documents themselves then? Yes. Absolutely. Uh, that, uh, it, you know, we, we, when we talk about Manifest Destiny, there's this kind of, it seems like every U.S. history textbook, for example, has like the chapter on Manifest Destiny, where it says, you know, in the early 1840s, it became belief among a majority of Americans that it, the United States was destined to expand across the continent. Uh, and then they cite John L. O'Sullivan's famous uh, annexation article uh, in the Democratic National Democratic Magazine and National Review, uh, and then they, um, you know, kind of move on uh, instead of actually figuring out what's going on in these places and what these people are saying. Uh, I mean, I think really I got the first place I looked, the, the kind of the most amount of literature that's pushing back against this uh, is in Texas, um, a book, uh, books by like Andres Resendez, um, Changing National Identity at the Frontier, who he looked at, you know, what are Anglo-Texans doing in the in the 1820s and 1830s, and what they're doing is not what is not manifest destiny. Uh, it's not uh, they are still expansionist in different ways. Uh, they are still not necessarily always likable. Um, they are usually uh, they are slaveholders. They usually dislike native people. They're not heroes by any means, uh, but they are not simply trying to expand the United States from the get-go. Uh, and then I kind of wanted to use Texas as a framework to look at other places. Uh, and it's the same thing. It pops up again and again where we're supposed to be seeing this, this desire for U.S. expansion. And it almost never pops up uh, until U.S. expansion is actually accomplished in the, in the uh, you know, 1846, 1847, 1848. Um, it, only, it never happens in 1840. Uh, people, are never talk, people in Oregon are never talking about the United States in 1840. Well, let's get a bit into the terminology that you use in the book, and let's start with the title. Uh, what are breakaway Americas, and how are they evidence of what you call uh, America's unmanifest future? I think I will take each word at a time, uh, because this, uh, this phrase and the title took uh, kind of a lot of thought. Uh, uh, so in terms of why, why I use the word breakaway, uh, I guess another word that could be used or uh, could have been used would be secessionist, uh, but that's too strong. That the people who move west um, or south, or uh, in the case of Canada, in one of my chapters, try to move north, uh, they are not trying to set up a separate republic 
forever from the United States. They're much more flexible than that. They are willing to set up a separate republic. They are willing that that, uh, that, that could be uh, a long-term thing, but they're also willing to be kind of reincorporated to the United States if they, if things go their way, uh, if they like what they see in the United States. So breakaway was kind of this, um, yeah, middle road. Um, they are not uh, between manifest destiny and secession, I guess I should say. Um, the word uh, Americas is, uh, you know, it's, I'm not happy with it, but after months and months of wrestling with different words, there was nothing else I could use. So Americas is problematic in that, uh, you know, as a U.S. historian, we're really supposed to use the adjective U.S. and the noun United States because there are Americans in South America and Central America, and they're all American. They're Americanos. Um, so what adjective, what noun could I use? Well, I, I can't use the United States because I'm not talking about the United States. I'm talking about people from the United States doing things beyond U.S. borders. Uh, and these, these Americas that they are creating are kind of rooted in U.S. Um, history. They're rooted in, rooted in U.S. politics and culture, uh, in political economy, uh, but they are not of the United States. So thinking about these as kind of alternatives to the United States, but doing a lot of things that the United States does. Uh, and one of the things that is so interesting about um, a lot of my characters is they call themselves American. Uh, so I also want to use the archives, you know, use that terminology. And they will claim that the United States has become anti-American, that they, they are more American than the United States has become by the mid to late 1830s. Um, uh, and so in each of these places, they're, they're both, these Americas are both, uh, kind of geopolitical spaces, uh, and they're also ideological, um, formations or formulations. So, uh, a lot of these Americans who go to these breakaway Americas or, um, go with ways to, they, they think about ways to improve what is going on in the United States. Usually that surrounds three aspects, um, Masculinity, it is men who are predominantly making these decisions to leave, even if they're leave coming with families. And they think about how they can be more masculine uh, in these places than they were in the United States. And they constantly say that the United States has kind of is no longer this masculine republic. Uh, two, tied up with masculinity is how will they gain access to land? And that is what of their one of the main goals in almost all of these places is what to do with land, how to gain ownership, and what to do with that land once you become an owner, uh, because they cannot get land in the United States. Uh, and the third thing with the, uh, in these breakaway Americas, uh, kind of the key component is slavery and what to do about slavery. And uh, so there's different kind of these, these breakaway Americas are these flavors of the United States. Uh, I use in the book the phrase that it's, it's almost like a, a kaleidoscope or a, or a funhouse mirror. So they will distort certain things from the United States they will, in Texas, they will make slavery even more important. But in Oregon, they will be completely anti-slavery and be free soil. Uh, so, and they, so they try to kind of expand the things they like and um, shrink the things they don't. Um, so that's a, that's a long answer about why I chose Americas and what's going on there. Um, in terms of the unmanifest future, uh, I mean, unmanifest is obviously a play on manifest destiny. Um, but really, I wanted to get to the sense that anything was possible. Uh, in the 1830s and 1840s, that the idea that the United States 
was automatically going to conquer the West uh, was simply uh, most Americans uh, didn't see that as likely, at least in the near term. There was a lot of kind of destiny that it will happen down the road. It will happen decades or 100 years in the future. But the idea that it has to happen in the mid-1840s just wasn't there. And, and they're acting on that belief. They don't, they think that if they're in California, they could be in California separate from the United States for 50 years. Um, because what they see, what they, um, what they see in the United States, kind of the other unmanifest part of this whole story, is that I don't think, I mean, it, this comes across in the book, uh, in the first chapter, that what is going on in the, in the Jacksonian U.S. is something they like, that it, there's uh, a lot of disorder, there are riots. Uh, most importantly, there's the uh, Panic of 1837, which is the worst depression that the United States had suffered up until that point. Um, there are a lot of uh, kind of bad political compromises that no one likes. Uh, there's South Carolina nullification. Uh, this is kind of a chaotic republic uh, that seems dysfunctional. Uh, and so in terms of unmanifest and it, unlikely, the fact that this kind of dysfunctional republic conquers uh, defeats Mexico uh, in 1846 and 7 and 8 and annexes Texas and uh, annexes Oregon. This does not seem, I mean, even as a historian, I look back at 1840 and think, wow, how did that happen? Um, so that's that's what ha- the unmanifest future um, is really referring to. I talk to historians on here sometimes and the title comes up and they'll say something like, I just, I couldn't think of anything else. And it seemed like a catchy phrase or sometimes they'll say, yeah, it was really the editor that chose that title. But it's interesting that your title really, it it was very thought out and every single word really points to a very specific part of your argument. It it took me a a while. uh, And I, and I chose um, the other, one other option was breakaway Americans, uh, Mm -hmm. kind of looking at the people, foregrounding the people and not the kind of the, political spaces. But as we'll probably get to, uh, some of the people who are doing these actions would definitely say they were not Americans. Mm -hmm. They are something else. But what they are doing are things that are rooted in U.S. history and culture and politics. So in the sense that that even if they're not themselves Americans, it is a breakaway America. Uh, So that was another option. Uh, And there was there was other many, many other options. The title took took quite a while uh, and went through many iterations. There's one other bit of terminology that I feel like we should talk about a bit, which will lead us into some of the earlier chapters of the book. And that's the idea of the Texas moment. And you describe this period from sort of the mid-1830s until the late 1840s or so as the Texas moment in the history of North America. Can you explain this concept a bit? Yes. Um, So, I mean, I think many Americans who study and love early American, early U.S. history, I should say, um, know that Texas was an independent republic. And yet, uh, except out, uh, with the exception of people in Texas who very much know it was an independent republic, and I think that is like um, two months of school, um, hmm. uh, for many other Americans, it's kind of quickly lost over. That, you, that they read in a synthesis that, you know, it's an independent republic, and then, uh, you know, um, two paragraphs later, it's becoming annexed. But it is an independent republic for almost 10 years. It's longer. uh, It lasts longer than the Confederacy. Uh, It lasts longer than the uh, U.S. government uh, as constituted under the Articles Confederation. Um, 
and we certainly take those periods seriously and take them on their own terms. And I and I uh, want to take the Republic of Texas, an independent, a second independent Anglo-American republic, on its own terms, and not assume that it is going to be annexed. Um, in fact, so so that's so that's the Texas moment refers to when Texas is independent. Um, the second part of the Texas it, it's the second part of the Texas moment is that. Americans at the time know it's independent and they recognize it's independent and therefore their ideas about what is going on on the continent or what could go on always come back to Texas. It, Texas in itself becomes essentially a language of talking about um, leaving the United States and setting up an own, their own country. Uh, so even, even when Americans, for example, anti-slavery Americans in the North, uh, they don't like Texas, uh, but they can use this as kind of if they want to invade Canada and create what they will say is a northern Texas. Uh, in California, they will talk about a Texas on the Pacific. Uh, so it becomes a language to talk about the other political possibilities. Uh, and kind of the third component of the Texas moment is that all this is going on, um, as I said before, when the United States seems to be highly dysfunctional, when the economy is a mess. Um, when there are a lot of uh, kind of political crises going on. Uh, so when they look at a new republic in the South, they think about new republics in the West and the North. And what they see in the United States is something that they don't like. So there's kind of the framework of possibilities uh, is wide open at the time uh, to many Americans who both leave and, you know, the breakaway Americans who set up breakaway Americas. It also is uh, even people who don't leave talk about these things and kind of what is possible on the continent. There's one other concept I think we should spend some time on before we get into the the examples that you use to make your case here in the book. And that's the, the idea of contingency. And this is a book that is largely about that idea of historical contingency. So can you tell us what is that idea? What is that concept? And why is it so important for historians to have a firm grasp of? Contingency, I mean, another way to put it would be chance or randomness or whim, um, something that happens that is completely unexpected and really, in some ways, unexplainable by a historian. I don't mean unexplainable by, I mean, we can explain it, but a, a great example is the fact that uh, an example of contingency in this book is William Henry Harrison's kind of untimely death within the first month of his presidency. He's elected to, as, as a, the first Whig president, with a Whig Congress, they are planning to do Whig things with the economy and try to get out of the uh, economic depression. And then he suddenly dies and what happens? That's unexplainable to historians in terms of, um, you know, we like thinking about broad structural forces um, uh, that kind of uh, that guide history along. And yet contingency is kind of the opposite of that. These moments where there's a, a quick turning point that no one could have predicted. Um, so contingency is so important for my book because what I argue is that Americans could not have predicted the election of Polk, uh, could not have predicted the annexation of Texas, could not have predicted the U.S.-Mexican War, even a year beforehand. Um, there's these contingent moments that turn things quickly and make them adjust. So we need to take – when they say they want to set up an independent republic on the Pacific, which they do say um, in 1843 – uh, that's not crazy because of what they're predicting and the, their predictions are pretty sound. 
Uh, but contingency changes things. Randomness changes things. Um, uh, and so I, there's and there's not a lot written on contingency. I mean, I really borrowed some of the ideas of um, Gary Kornblith has a wonderful counterfactual essay about the coming of the Civil War and uh, what if Henry Clay were elected in uh, 1844. Uh, William Frayling has um, uh, his, both his books, uh, Road to Disunion 1 and 2, spend a lot of time with contingency. But I don't think... Um, so for, so for how much good history is out there, there's not a lot written on it. And I think it needs to be taken more seriously. Uh, follow the paths that were, that seem now baked in, but were actually quite unexpected to many Americans. Let's go back to Texas for a bit, um, because that's really the, the, the first example that you give to make your case here. And can you give us a brief history of the Republic of Texas and what possible futures for the American Southwest and for North America more broadly that nation represented? Sure. Uh, I mean, I guess there's in Texas, there's probably really if you begin with Mexican Texas, it's, it's uh, four or five political phases uh, in the course of about 20 years. Um, uh, Mexican Tejas, the, the territory of Tejas, is um, from the uh, Mexican government's point of view um, unsettled. It is dominated by native peoples. Uh, there's not enough Mexican settlers going to kind of secure it. So they ask Americans to come in the early 1820s. And this is Stephen Austin um, and kind of these famous early Anglo-Texans who come to Texas. Uh, and Mexico gives them tons and tons of incredibly cheap land, way more cheap and way more accessible uh, than anything that was available in the United States. Uh, they come, they are, um, new work on this is, is really good. They come as quite loyal. In some ways, they're very loyal to Mexico, particularly Stephen Austin. Uh, they like the, the project of Mexican, Mexican federalism. Um, they like the fact that they have basically total autonomy in Texas. And then by the early 1830s, Mexico is clamping down. They've realized they've got uh, this territory that is, uh, separate culturally, separate economically, because these settlers uh, bring enslaved people with them uh, and are trying to set up a plantation economy. Uh, Mexico kind of panics. Uh, but part of the whole Texas story is also uh, there's a revolution or rebellion in Mexico City. Uh, there's a new constitution, and they take away all this autonomy from not just Texas, but all of the Mexican states and territories. And so the Texans rebel. And this is the famous, this is the Alamo, this is Goliath, this is San Jacinto. Um, and we get this kind of uh, Texas Republic that, interestingly, um, is kind of, it, it's seen as unique by Americans uh, today. But at the time, it's just one of, uh, you know, a dozen uh, Mexican states that rebel against the Mexican government. And so declares independence kind of, uh, it's nicknamed the Accidental Republic for a good reason. Uh, either the people in Texas didn't want, uh, either they wanted to stay with Mexico and they're kind of pushed away by this new centralist government, or uh, they want to join the United States because they realize the United States will uh, can provide protection against a over a much larger and much stronger uh, Mexico than Texas ever could be. Um, they don't want to be independent, but then uh, they so they ask the U.S. to annex them. Um, the United States says no. Uh, because Van Buren, does, Martin Van Buren, who was the new president at the time, does not want to um, upset, uh, there's kind of matter of slavery, um, and kind of he wants to keep the Democratic coalition together uh, between Northerners and Southerners, and adding a slave territory would be problematic. 
Uh, he is worried about the Panic of 1837 and the Depression that starts as soon as, when, as, soon as he takes office. Uh, and he really does not want to break the treaty with Mexico, uh, the peace treaty with Mexico the United States had. That, um, so he declines, and then the Texans have to figure it out. And what's, they completely turn things around. So there's Sam Houston is the first president. And he wants to be annexed. Uh, the second president is Mirabel Lamar. And Mirabel Lamar is elected on a platform of expanding the Republic of Texas West and creating the second American Republic. Uh, to, he, doesn't, he is against U.S. annexation. So there's this kind of five, six, seven-year period where the Republic of Texas is experimenting as a permanently independent republic. Uh, that ultimately, by the mid-1840s, fails. It's one of the reasons why Sam Houston is elected again and Texas tries again for annexation. Um, but it is, uh, they really go for it in the, in the middle period of the Republic of Texas, that Lamar is sending expeditions uh, to the West. Uh, he dreams of uh, getting to the Pacific. Um, all of this is kind of in his head. None of it really works out. Uh, but, but it's this moment of um, uh, really embracing Texas identity and Texas independence and foregoing connections to the United States. After discussing Texas, you then move kind of north and east for a time, which I found a bit surprising, and you discuss what is, in your words, an attempt at perfecting America in Canada. So why did you include this very non-Western example in the book, and what does it tell us about the Jacksonian United States? And frankly, I had never heard before of the conflict that you describe in this chapter. Yeah, the, uh, the Patriot War, as it's called, as right. a few historians who study it um, have called it. Uh, there are not many books out there about it. Oh, there's a new, wonderful, new edited volume um, uh, by Maxime Dagenet and uh, Julien Madoui uh, that's called uh, Revolution Across Borders, which is all on the Canadian rebellions and the Patriot War that, uh, if you're interested, is a lot of new essays. Um, I have one in there, but... but uh, the other ones are just are, are excellent. Um, so uh, what happened, I guess I should just spend a little time with like what happens in Canada in 1837. There are two rebellions in Lower Canada, which becomes Quebec, and Upper Canada, which is basically Ontario. Um, and Americans across the border who have many connections, particularly in Upper Canada, uh, particularly along the Great Lakes, they are constantly interacting with Upper Canadians. Most Upper Canadians were once Americans. They're kind of the late loyalist migration uh, from the United States in the 1790s. Um, uh, Americans in the United States get really excited about these rebellions. These rebellions are pretty quickly crushed, uh, and all the rebels flee across the U.S. border. Again, this is most, I'm focusing mostly on Upper Canada here, and Americans in the northern United States uh, basically join armies, set up secret uh, what they call hunter's lodges, uh, to try to restart these rebellions. And so they, will, they end up writing a new constitution for the Republic of Canada. Um, they think about uh, banking schemes, how they would set up a bank that would kind of allow for more equality uh, among these future Republic of Canada citizens. Um, they think about how to redistribute land more equitably. Uh, many, many of these people are kind of on the radical wing of the, of the Democratic Party, the uh, loco foco wing. Um, and they want to, they, they basically, I argue that they want to basically create a better America in Canada, kind of 
uh, with all those things, again, more equal, uh, more opportunity, particularly this is right after the beginnings of the Panic of 1837 that all of this happens. Um, and uh, when you bring up uh, kind of why is this in a book that is mostly about the American West and the politics of Washington, uh, I don't think there's anything particularly Western or Southern, I should say, about Americans kind of leaving U.S. borders. The difference is the geopolitics. Uh, and so for decades, Canada is basically closed to U.S. migrants. Uh, the, British, the British are worried about kind of the American character and see these people as unruly and will bring um, unneeded headaches. So they prevent migration into Canada. And then for a brief moment during the Patriot War, it all seems, everything restarts. It suddenly seems that Canada is a place where Americans will be able to go. And they plan to overthrow the British and create a second republic. Um, and then it's quickly closed down again. These people fail. They fail miserably. They are crushed by the British. They are also crushed by the United States. that does not want to get into a war with Britain. So you see how the, the geopolitics of the northern border uh, really changes the outcome. Whereas in the same thing happens in the Southwest in Texas, but the United States does not prevent Americans from crossing the, uh, the, the border into Mexico that becomes Texas. Uh, they really don't need to worry about Mexican aggression. They need to worry about British aggression. Uh, so uh, it's really, it's not, it's really a, a moment where we see that uh, migrating America, it's kind of an outward movement, not a westward movement. Uh, it becomes westward and southwestward because of the shape of uh, the North American geopolitics and really the presence of Great Britain, which is the, you know, the singular power um, in the hemisphere and really in the world at that point. The story of the Mormon exodus is um, a well-worn one in American history, certainly more so than the Patriot War, that's for sure. Um, and I felt like you told it particularly well um, in, in the chapter that you spend on it in your book. Can you tell us uh, why you included this in your story of the Texas moment? What, uh, what is revealing about the story of the Mormon exodus into the West in this particular context? First thing I should say about the Mormons is that a lot of this um, chapter is based on a new volume of the papers of Joseph Smith, uh, the, uh, the Council of 50 Papers, uh, and a bunch of other historians are using this now to write pretty amazing books. Uh, ben Park uh, just wrote a book called Kingdom of Nauvoo. Um, uh, Spencer McBride is writing a, uh, an account of Joseph Smith's quest for the presidency in 1844, kind of using these Council of 50 Minutes. These minutes have been kept secret since they... They started, it's, the council started in 1844. They have been secret until last year or two years ago. Uh, and this is basically this political arm of the Mormon church. As Joseph Smith's um, ambitions have grown and has, as hostility between the Mormons and Illinoisans and between Americans more generally has grown, he starts thinking about how to kind of what to do about Mormon politics and uh, a Mormon polity or, or a kingdom and where to set that up and how to set that up. So it's these fascinating internal deliberations. And what makes the Mormons so interesting and I think so compelling for this, for my book, is that more than any other group of people, uh, they see North America uh, in their, at current, when their Council of 50 is formed, they're in Nauvoo, Illinois, which is right on the Mississippi River. Um, they see North America 
in in all its idiosyncrasies and all its geo geopolitical um, kind of all the geopolitical spaces on the continent that are, might be available to them. So they talk about Texas and they send people to Sam Houston to talk about moving to Texas. They think about ally, allying with the British against the United States. They talk about moving to uh, Mexican California and what would the Mexican government do for them. They talk about Oregon. Uh, most interestingly, uh, they talk about um, allying with um, native peoples, particularly removed natives like the Cherokees, uh, who they see as kind of like them, uh, that they are been a, they are the Cherokees are um, at least the elite ones are Americanized and uh, they speak English and have been mistreated by the United States and the Mormons see themselves in the same light, so they will ally with them against the United States uh, and they send emissaries to U.S. Indian territory. Um, and that part of that is a lot of that is based on uh, Mormon theology. Where the Lamanites are, are uh, in the Book of Mormon, they are they are uh, in Mormon theology. These are the people that become Native Americans, and uh, the prediction is that they will one one day be redeemed, um, and the Mormons want to do the redeem. Uh, so, uh, if to really, if if you were to choose one chapter of this book to kind of read and get the whole picture of everything, now you would be doing it through Mormon eyes, but it would, but you would read the Mormon chapter just because they have this all-encompassing view uh, of the continent, um, which is what makes their, their, their probably the most familiar story to most Americans in this book, but also it what makes them, it, you know, their, their inclusion is necessary. They are, uh, uh, they are emblematic of the Texas moment in um, kind of the most, more than any other group of people, I'd say, in the book. Graduate students take note after the intro and the epilogue. Read this chapter. <laughs> uh, yeah, you might you might be in trouble. Just read the intro and the conclusion. You don't have to <laughs> uh, Mormon chapter, but it is really that the Mormons see things best um, than than any other. Group. Uh, part of that, I think, is ge uh, geographical as well, because they really are in the center of the continent uh, in Illinois. So they they kind of they get. John C. Fremont's maps, and they, they put them out and just investigate where could they go, west, north, south. Um, uh, they're, they're really fascinating. You mentioned the Cherokee a couple of minutes ago, and they're the focus of a chapter themselves, uh, the Cherokee people and their quest for a sovereign nation apart from the United States. And this might be a good opportunity to go into a little bit more depth about that term again, your concept of breakaway Americas here, because you use it very specifically, as you said, uh, since the Cherokee people were not of the United States, but they still fit under your definition, um, as you argue in the book. So tell us a bit about that and a bit about their attempt at forming a breakaway America. It's, I think it's important to say at the outset that the Cherokee nation uh, is not, they are not Americans. They would not have said that they are Americans. Um, they are a native nation, um, in many ways in opposition that, that exists, uh, at least in the late 1930s or eight, 1930s, excuse me, 1830s that exists in opposition to the, um, first Jackson and then Van Buren administration because of Cherokee removal and trail of tears. Um, but why I, so if they're not breakaway Americans, I believe the Cherokee Nation and really what they're thinking and what some other native peoples in U.S. Indian Territory are thinking about is that they are thinking about, um, they, well, I guess they are thinking about what could happen in U.S. Indian Territory. What are the possibilities? And they are coming at this angle from a 
um, kind of with an American cultural and political background, particularly the elite, uh, the the um, the, um, the non elite. It's much more questionable, kind of uh, what they are thinking. Uh, and I should note that in the Cherokee Nation, clan is still important, kinship is still important at this point. But they're also writing a constitution. Uh, they are practicing plantation agriculture. Uh, they are they are doing things um, uh, things that would be said to be kind of American practices. In contrast, to say uh, to farther west from U.S. Indian territory, there are the Kiowa and the, Coman- the Comanche. Uh, they are also trying to assert native sovereignty, but in a very different way uh, uh, than the, the Cherokee Nation uh, and other the other peoples of U.S. Indian territory. Uh, and so. Um, what, what I argue is going on in U.S. Indian territory is something that they are not trying to gain complete independence, but uh, they are trying to gain some sort of uh, expansive autonomy. Uh, in the l- late 1830s, um, you know, it's really a question of what is U.S. Indian territory? No one really knows. Uh, is it kind of a protectorate? Is it a buffer? Uh, some... Uh, American politicians like U.S. Indian Territory there as a buffer against um, the, the the natives of the plains, like the Comanche, because um, it protects white Americans that they'd rather have them uh, go through the Cherokee Nation first to get to Arkansas. Um, uh, and so, I think uh, John Ross, in particular, uh, other Cherokee leaders, uh, I believe there are Choctaw leaders as well. Uh, they're trying to think about kind of a way to secure secure kind of an expansive permanent autonomy in U.S. Indian territory, U.S. Indian territory, which at this point is the far western edge of the United States. And again, no one knows when the United States or if the United States is going to conquer places farther west. Uh, and so they might just be permanently out there uh, for a long, long period of time uh, and kind of really can assert an expansive amount of autonomy, not necessarily independence, um, but, but autonomy. So uh, it's, uh, in that sense, I still, even though they're not trying to assert independence, they are still, uh, in my view, a breakaway America. And you end the book with a couple chapters that take place on the Pacific coast. And I think for many people who are perhaps not as well-versed in the history of the uh, American Far West as others, and even people that are particularly well-versed, they might assume that the history of the American Pacific and of American California in particular, that it begins with the California gold rush. But as you point out, that gold rush only really happens because of, among other reasons, an earlier attempt at creating one of these breakaway Americas. So can you tell us a bit about the story of the short-lived Bear Flag Republic and and of this uh, example of, of a breakaway America? I guess I'd say that I, I think the Bear Flag Republic is kind of the end of the breakaway America in California. And in fact, it's kind of, in some ways, it's the opposite of everything that's going on before, that, that the Bear Flag Republic is the anomaly. So let me say, um, the Bear Flag Republic, uh, for listeners who don't know too well, is is this short-lived rebellion by originally 33 Americans in Mexican California. Um, and they seize uh, the little hamlet of Sonoma, and they declare the Bear Flag Republic uh, not much happens. Uh, about a month later, they find out that US, the United States and Mexico are at war, and they kind of are incorporated into U.S. forces and uh, tr- undertake the U.S. conquest of California. Um, but 
the bear, this bear flag rebellion is kind of portrayed as ma uh, manifest destiny on overdrive. Uh, if you think about Texas, it takes it takes a decade for Mex for uh, Americans to travel there, uh, and uh, they live in Mexican Texas. It takes another decade as an independent republic. Then they're annexed. It's kind of this 20, 30 year story. The, the Bear Flag Revolt and what happens in California is like a five year story. Americans get there in the early 1840s. Not many of them. It's much less popular than Texas or Oregon in terms of American migrants. Um, and within a year, they're upset at Mexico. And within a year, two years, they revolt. And then within a month, they're part of the United States. Um, and what I argue is that when you actually look at the history prior to that, a majority of Americans who go to California um, don't want to rebel against the, the California. So the Californias are the, um, uh, the, the Hispanic people who are kind of in charge because the Mexican state is basically absent from California. California is basically an autonomous territory. Uh, there's only about 7,000 Californios, and they're surrounded by tens of thousands of Native people. Um, and the, the Americans kind of get along with that. They're not, they don't, neither side really loves the other, and they don't want to acculturate to each other. Uh, but a uh, hundred Americans join an army in 1845 that is tasked with um, suppressing a California rebellion. And then when they realize that it's actually the Californios who will give them the land, they, they, they join a Mexican army. So they're signing up the, ye the year before the U.S.-Mexican War. They're signing up for a Mexican, for a Mexican army because uh, they're promised land by the governor. Uh, the, then they switch sides when they realize the Californios are the ones really in charge and the Californios promised them land. Uh, and everything seems to be kind of going okay. Uh, and there's not... Uh, notice, by the way, that 100 people is three times the amount that joined the Bear Flag Revolt initially. Uh, so, and then what happens? J uh, John C. Fremont shows up uh, at the head of the U.S. Topographical Engineer Corps of Topical Engineers, um, and he kind of activates Manifest Destiny uh, in a way that the Californios suddenly think the United States has its eyes on California. Uh, they are studying, they suddenly get very nervous about uh, the American settlers uh, in California, largely in the Sacramento Valley um, near um, the fort of John Sutter. Um, and American settlers are getting nervous as well. And there's, there's kind of tension because this U.S. Army has showed up. And that leads to the Bear Flag Revolt. So I argue that the Bear Flag Revolt is, is really something else entirely that is not emblematic of what was going on in California beforehand. Uh, it's, it's an example of, we always think of it as kind of the other example of Manifest Destiny besides what's going on in Texas. But actually it's just, I mean, 33 people is not a lot of people um, to start a revolt. Um, so um, that's, that's kind of, a, it's, I try to turn, turn the tables a little bit uh, uh, and our, uh, on, in California in terms of how the bear flag revolt is typically portrayed. And it's a perfect example of what you're talking about, because pretty much up until the point when Fremont shows up, it's not clear what's going to happen in California. It's really everything is up in the air. And, and, and if you're living in that particular moment, the future is very hard to predict from the late 1840s at that point. So I, I thought this was a, a, an excellent chapter, really. Yeah. And, and California, um, California at this time is kind of just this political mess where it's divided between um, Californios in the north, uh, Norteños, 
uh, California's in the south, uh, around Los Angeles, Sereños, uh, the American settlers in the interior in the Sacramento Valley, uh, a bunch of American and European merchants uh, that live along the coast, um, tens of thousands of native peoples kind of in the California interior, and the Mexican government. And everyone's kind of jockeying for position, and no one really, it, there, there's no, no one side has, has um, they kind of keep switching sides uh, because no one can seem to gain the upper hand. There's actually this fascinating moment uh, right before the Bear Flag Revolt when all these prominent Californios meet in, the, at that point, the capital of Mexican California in Monterey, um, and they debate, well, what should we do? Because Mexico really is not in control. Should we be independent? Should we join Great Britain? Should we join the United States? Should we join France? Uh, they really have no idea. And, and then everything kind of, all these plans um, kind of go by the wayside when Fremont shows up, when the Bear Flag Revolt happens. And suddenly it becomes a much more kind of the typical racialized and nationalized story that we tell about uh, the U.S.-Mexican War. Uh, but up until then, it, it, is, uh, it is really, uh, you know, they had no idea what was going to happen. And it was, and they had no idea because everything was kind of a mess out there. And finally, you close with the story of Oregon. And Oregon has a special place in the American mythos of, of Western settlement, in the, the kind of mythology of the American West. So what is the typical, uh, excuse me, what is the typical narrative around Oregon? And how does that narrative conceal some darker and more insidious realities? Well, for, your, for, for the listeners who grew up in the 80s, as I did, uh, the typical narrative of Oregon is the Oregon Trail video game. Um, that it is um, uh, families who travel. Uh, I mean, in the video game, they don't really talk about expatriation, obviously. But uh, <laughs> they are traveling beyond U.S. borders, trying to secure. Uh, they are without slaves. They want to secure a, uh, a kind of a small farm, uh, 640 acres, um, that they will get for free when they arrive in Oregon. Uh, when they arrive in the Willamette Valley, uh, they are, um, I mean, the Willamette Valley is, um, has already, is kind of open for settlement because, um, um, the Hudson's Bay company had brought, um, they, they're out there with, uh, and they had brought epidemic disease. It wiped out the local native people, something like 90%. And so there literally is land for the taking. Um, and so the, the, I mean, the video game doesn't talk about that either, um, but it's kind of this peaceful story of American families trying to get free land, crossing a continent. It's very dangerous and hard. And um, it, it, it's in some ways a, uh, I believe one, one historian wrote about it as saying it was the cleanest and least dismaying of all the acquisitions during uh, kind of the manifest destiny. So it's, it's, you know, peacefully annexed by the United States. There is violence after that, but up until then it's kind of this, it's this, Feel good story. Um, there is a lot of truth to that in certain ways. Uh, the British who are there already, the Hudson's Bay Company, really they do get along with the Americans who are there. Um, the native peoples who remain there uh, uh, work with the. There are Methodist and Presbyterian missionaries. Um, the society becomes prosperous. People do get land. They do come as families. They have children. Um, but there's also kind of the, the, as you said, the kind of the dark side, the insidious underbelly of this whole story is that they are going as 
explicit anti-slavery free soilers, but um, as is typical, particularly in the Western United States, the free, free soilers are also uh, vehemently racist. Um, and they, they pass a law in, I think it's 1843, maybe 1844, uh, that is known to us today as the Lash Law. It says any African-American who arrives in the territory um, has, uh, I can't remember the number of days on my head, maybe 30 days, maybe 90 days, um, has a certain amount of days to leave Oregon or they will get, um, they will get whipped. Uh, I believe it's 40 lashes. And that will happen, that time period, then that will happen every 30 days or every 90 days. Um, it's a, you know, if you think about uh, it, it isn't, they are being very clear with who they are welcoming and who they are not. Uh, as far as I can tell, this is never actually put into practice. But uh, it is, it shows you what the priorities are. I mean, we think about slavery in the United States and um, these breakaway Americas break along the lines of slavery and race. If you are a slave owner in the United States and you want to leave the United States and get land, you go to Texas. Uh, if you don't like slavery, you go to Oregon. But a lot of those people um, are also, you know, there is this, um, the feel-good story isn't so feel-good when you get down to it, kind of on its, um, if you dig down deeper. Um, so that, that's the story of Oregon. Um, that there are, there, there are truths to the positive narrative, but they're also uh, kind of an a awful underbelly. And especially if we think about these breakaway Americas as attempts by those who are breaking away to improve on something that they see as fundamentally wrong with the, the extant nation of America, then, as you said, this creates, it, it, it shows, right, what people, what the people that are moving west and are, are creating these, these new places, these new republics, what they are interested in, what they are trying to emphasize. And Oregon is really showing that they want that, that these white settlers want to create a very racialized republic. Absolutely. And that's, and that's the case really in many of these places. Um, I didn't talk about it when we were talking about California, but um, it's the smallest group of American migrants who go there. Uh, and there's, they're kind of this unique group that uh, I argue in the book that they kind of want this middle road where they are anti-slavery in theory. Uh, they don't want to go to Texas, uh, but actually they're totally fine with um, the practice of slavery. And what they will do when they get to California is they will emulate the elite Californios and basically enslave uh, local native peoples. They don't call it slavery. Um, they can say that they're anti-slavery, uh, but the life that they are trying to live uh, in some ways is uh, as it would be lived on a, um, you know, kind of a large uh, Southern uh, plantation. Um, so there's, uh, there's kind of a story of race and labor in all of these places. Um, uh, yeah. So how then did the Texas moment end? And how, as I, I think you described in the book, as Sam Houston put it, how does the Texas moment turn into the era of manifest destiny? Well, I use, uh, I use Sam, uh, Sam Houston has a kind of unknown speech in early 1846. He actually says after the fact that he was sick when he was giving it, and so no one seems to have actually listened to it. Um, hmm. But it's very revealing. So Sam Houston's an interesting character because um, he is always a U.S. nationalist. When he goes to Texas, when he's president in the beginning, he wants the U.S. to annex Texas. When he becomes president again, that's his goal again. And then when he's the... Um, 
uh, the governor or senator in 1861 when Texas votes to secede from the United States, he is against that too, and they throw him out. Uh, he always wants to join the United States whenever and wherever. Um, unlike most of the characters in my book who are much more ambivalent, uh, willing to play different futures. Uh, Sam Houston then uh, is no longer the president of Texas when Texas gets annexed or there's a brief or there's a fourth president who's there for like a month. Um, but then he becomes the senator from Texas and he shows up uh, in the U.S. Capitol and gives this speech um, in early 1846 about Oregon. And what he argues, he says this kind of compares Texas and Oregon. And so he says in, uh, in Oregon, uh, the people there traveled beyond U.S. borders into this British-controlled territory in theory, um, or at least kind of sh it's officially shared with the United States and Britain, but it's the British who are there. Um, they, they travel there and desperately wanting the United States to come help them. They are going to expand the United States. We need to support them. He supports James Polk's kind of aggressive diplomacy towards Britain. Says, you know, they're desperate for our support. Then he goes back to Texas, and the whole story he tells is completely opposite, that the, that the individual Anglo-Texans did it all themselves. Um, they, they were you know, on the, the forefront of all these battles against Mexico. Um, and then I think he uses a phrase um, they, that, he, that something like a, a, a bride and groom, how, how the United States and Texas come together um, at the end of 1845, that it's like a... a um, uh, a bride for her groom or something like that. So there's two very different stories and they're both not true. Um, that the Texans were a mess and uh, it, the Republic doesn't really work too well. Uh, and Oregonians are not always going, just planning for the U S to annex it. But you can see the transition. He's telling a story about the past and he, and he talks about what people were doing there and how they were independently minded and they joined the United States willingly. And then he talks about the present and he says, Americans out in Oregon, they think the United States is going to expand and we need to help them. And so you see this transition that, that suddenly there becomes this idea that wherever Americans live, the United States has to support them and has to intervene. Um, and it's, it's a fascinating kind of hinge point. It really reveals how quickly this transition occurs. Uh, and uh, but what's actually going on in a lot of these places is kind of either uh, an unhappiness. Um, but once the U.S. kind of expands and does the, the manifest destiny moment, uh, in all these places, there's either this unhappiness, like the Mormons are uh, very not thrilled. The fact that they leave U.S. borders, go into a remote corner of Mexico in the Salt Lake Valley, and within months are back within U.S. borders again. Um, the Cherokee Nation, uh, it seems, uh, even though they were not trying for independence, they were on the edge of the United States, and now they're kind of in the center of it, the center of it. They are circumscribed. Uh, they are unhappy with what the events that happened. Uh, and even in places like Oregon, where people are, are not necessarily upset about U.S. annexation, uh, they believe they are entitled to certain things, things that the Texans got when they were annexed in 1845. Uh, that the United States doesn't give to the people of Oregon or doesn't give to the bear flaggers in California. Uh, the bear flaggers write saying like, we are like Texas, that you should thank us for rebelling. And no one really responds because it was 33 guys not doing very much. Um, but it's kind of this language of how you should get annexed and how you should be treated. Uh, so kind of 
what's told in the East among politicians and about how much these Americans beyond U.S. borders want the United States there is not actually the case on the ground. Uh, it, it, it's far more ambivalent or, in the case of the Mormons and the Cherokees, uh, dissatisfaction. Thinking about the book as a whole, what do you hope readers come away from your text understanding? If there's sort of one big takeaway that you hope people leave thinking about, what might that be? Um, we, I mean, I think we've, I would say two, um, and I think we've talked about both of them a little bit, but I think one is that in terms of dismantling tropes, uh, I would like, I would love to see in U.S. syntheses in 10 or 20 years, a new explanation for the U.S.-Mexican War, Texas Annexation, and the Oregon Treaty, other than Manifest Destiny, or at least something that is a lot more complicated, because it was a lot more complicated, um, and it was a lot more unexpected. Um, and I should note that uh, the ironic story of Manifest Destiny that set never, never seems to be talked about is that it all falls apart uh, a little more than a decade later, that for how, you, how supposedly strong the United States is, um, during the Civil War, it, I mean, it collapses into civil war, and all these places in the West uh, kind of go back to doing their own thing. Talk about a Pacific Republic or a Mormon Empire. Uh, the Cherokee Nation splits uh, in terms of the Union and the Confederacy. Um, so uh, I would like to see Manifest Destiny kind of, I don't want to say abandoned, because I think it's something we still need to talk about and unpack, uh, but I think it's much more complicated than we've assumed. The Manifest Destiny could be the manifest destiny of, uh, you know, white Americans to set up independent republics, then they will control the continent that way. It doesn't mean manifest destiny to, um, uh, for the United States to control everything. I mean, even in, in the annexation article by John L. O. Sullivan, uh, he says that California will join the union in the fast hastening year of 1945, a hundred years from hmm. when he's writing. Uh, and so let's, we need to kind of, rethink how we how we tell this story the second thing i want to take that i would like readers to take out of it is uh kind of the importance of contingency to history uh and that we need to think more as historians about these contingent moments and think more about the actors at the time who end up being so wrong uh the people in uh you know mirabeau lamar who thinks texas can become this second american empire second american empire and second american republic uh, he is so, so wrong. But what he's thinking in the late 1830s is very rational. Uh, uh, and that we need to take, we need to understand that humans, even those who are wrong, were rational actors making predictions that sometimes go wrong for reasons that they could never have predicted. Uh, and I don't know what other, you know, moments in history, like right off the top of my head, that I could think of that's happening. But we at least need to... Um, we at least need to think about uh, contingency more um, as, as a kind of a, a, a principle that guides us along with uh, broader social structures. Well, and I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I think that that's uh, applicable to our current moment in terms of politics, in terms of social uprisings, in terms of public health. We're at a moment right now where there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of people are making predictions. I think that that's part of what humans do is make predictions, but it's also, I think your book in particular shows that making predictions in the moment is incredibly difficult. And it's really hard to tell whose ideas about the future are going to actually come to fruition, that the future is always very open. 
Yeah, and along those lines, I mean, in terms of our current moment, I just um, published an article in the Washington Post that was kind of thinking about the 2016 election in relationship to my book and the 1840s and 1830s that, uh, you know, sometimes we see uh, the, 20, the result of 2016 as the kind of the revenge of the white working class. Um, we explain it by things like misogyny uh, and uh, all of that is true. But what also is true is that if um, you take away, you, you move um, Donald Trump's infamous Access Hollywood tape, you move that two weeks later, right before the election happens, we probably have a different president. So, so these things, these things exist. I'm not trying to push against and saying broad structural forces are not, and social uh, forces are not very important in the driver of history. But so are moments that we just can't predict at various times that they work together. So I know that this book has only been out for a couple months, so this might be kind of a silly question, but I always like to end my interviews by getting a preview of what the authors are working on next. So, Tommy, what are you working on next? Um, I'm working on a book, uh, uh, a trade book that uh, right now the title is Unbounded Politics, uh, which uh, which that title will almost certainly change, uh, looks <laughs> at the, the moments during the political history of the early republic, so between the revolution and the civil war, these uh, political moments that seem to be um, anomalous, seem to be um, not part of the trend of kind of Jeffersonian to Jacksonian democracy. Uh, so I've written a chapter on women's suffrage in early New Jersey, where women uh, who are single uh, or widowed and own property could vote and did vote. Uh, I wrote, I've, and I've written a chapter on uh, the Whiskey Rebellion and thinking about uh, backcountry rebellions as a as a phenomenon that goes away, uh, and so um, kind of part part of this story is once again about contingency that these moments that seem so weird and anomalous to us that either we completely ignore or we quickly pass over uh, might not have been so at the time except for uh, certain kind of on the ground on the ground events that that might occur, um, and so uh, and kind of trying to tell these interesting stories to a broader public. Historians know most of these, um, but, but trying to kind of give a wider story of early American politics than the, the typical one. Bringing political contingency into the public sphere. I like it. <laughs> Dr. Thomas Richards is a history teacher at the Springside Chestnut Hill Academy in Philadelphia, and he is the author of Breakaway Americas, the unmanifest future of the Jacksonian United States, which came out with Johns Hopkins University Press in the spring of 2020. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tommy. Thank you, Steve. That was great.